0: Hey everyone, it's Aaron Fritz and Chris Beck. We've been working on something new and exciting for our colleagues and trainees. Quick story, last year I had read somewhere that the volume of medical information doubles every 73 days, 73 days. It hit me that it's really difficult to keep up and it got me thinking about Backtable. We're getting good practical knowledge from our podcasts but there's room for improvement in them as an educational resource. We felt like we owed it to you, our audience, to build on the podcast to address this need and that's what we're doing with Backtable Plus.
1: Exactly, Aaron. Backtable Plus is for doctors who are seeking to elevate their practice and sharpen their skills by learning from their peers. We've created focused, curated courses on interventional and endovascular procedures vetted by Backtable's network of practicing experts, and we're really proud to be able to share that with you all. It's live now at backtable.com. Tap the link and just click on courses at the top.
0: Yeah, in addition to getting this information in a concise course format, you get CME for it. I figured we're educating ourselves constantly online. It sure would be nice to get credit for it. Partnering with me if I made this happen. There are three years worth of CME
1: credits already live in the platform today. These courses are live right now. Find the link or type in backtable.com and click the tab that says courses and that's it. We also made a mobile app and you can grab that from either Apple or Android's app store as well. Couple more things.
0: From now until SIR in late March, users will get 50% off of the annual subscription, a great way to use your education funds. And the first 25 physicians to sign up, you guessed it, a signature limited edition Back a Plus hoodie. Only a few of these, so get them while you can. Can't wait to see you there. Just go to backtable.com and click on courses at the top. This week on the Backtable
2: Podcast. I have a, a single page document that I sent down to all my clients, it's what I call a locum's profile. It's got my photo where I trained and what I consider area of expertise. And then every site that I work at, I solicit reviews from everyone on site, um, wow, usually at least idea. once a year. And I have a bar graph that shows you know, how am I overall, how am I in communication, how am I in friendliness, how am I in actual clinical skill, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that- I put that together and that's what I propose. And it says how many states I've done, how many procedures I've done, et cetera, et cetera. I give that to all my clients to let them know that I'm, I know what I'm doing and I've done right. this for a while.
3: I think you've given me a good
2: idea I what know. I probably <laughs> should I, do. I, I'm, like, I'm
4: definitely know. updating my CV. Yeah, some of these It's like, it's it's like great. wow. Well, um, I find that it's
2: better than a CV. The CV yeah. contains a lot of information. This and is very this is a, it's, it's very yeah. locum specific yes. and it's one page and it hits the high, high notes. So. I love it.
4: Hello everyone and welcome to the Back Table podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com.
0: First, a brief message from our sponsor. The Hawk 1 Directional Atherectomy System treats all plaque morphologies, including severe calcium above and below the knee. If your treatment goal is to make a small channel or to maximize luminal gain, choose Hawk 1 to preserve a patient's native vessel and keep future treatment options open. Risks may include but are not limited to arterial perforation or dissection, embolism or arterial thrombosis, and vascular complications that could require surgical repair. Learn more about Hawk one as well as risk and safety information at Medtronic.com slash one For more than a decade, Reflow Medical has designed and engineered medical devices that respond to unmet clinical needs. The Wingman Crossing Catheter with its unique extendable beveled tip and an expanded indication for CTOs. The Specs LP, created to meet the need for a low profile version of the Specs shapeable Support Catheter, and the new line of core catheters that answers the call for a suite of effective tools to use in challenging PCI procedures. Now, back to the episode.
4: All right, I'm here with my friends uh, here at SIR Live uh, 2023 in Phoenix. Uh, with the hot, hot heat and things are about to get a little bit spicy, back table coming at you, your source for all things endovascular and interventional. Uh, we're here in Phoenix. I'm here with my friends, uh, Kavid uh, Devlopoli and Vishal Kadakia. Great to finally see you guys in person. Meet in person, yeah. yeah. yeah.
3: This, is, this is amazing. Yeah.
4: yeah. Um, so a little, bit a, a little bit about today's episode. We're going to do some updates to a really popular episode last year where we talked about uh, locum tenens in IR. Uh, you know, the big bad word, locum tenens. Let, let's get a little further into it. We all have varying experiences. So how about um, we just jump right in and just get some updates? Uh, Michelle, you want to start? What's been going on in the last year?
2: Yeah, uh, I think we talked about a year ago. So still doing locums full time. Uh, a few new clients, uh, a few old clients. Uh, one of my major clients I'm shifting out of. Uh, moving into some new states. Uh, I just signed a new client in Alabama. Most likely a new cal- uh, client in uh, Maryland um, and a few other prospects, um, but still full-time welcomes.
4: And how's, how's licensing been going in, uh, in all the different states?
2: Um, I know some people talked about uh, delays due to the pandemic, and, mm. but uh, I, I have to be fair. I think I have only had to procure two new licenses in the last year. Um, and Didn't have any difficulty.
4: Okay. Yeah. Got you. Kavi, what's going on with you?
3: What's well, a great way of putting it, Vishal. Same, same for me, so some, some new clients, some old clients. I'm still doing a split of half hospital, half OBL. New hospital client, I think last time we spoke I was in Minnesota. Uh, now have a new hospital client in South Dakota. And then a few OBL clients in Florida, um, including a new one. So things have been good.
4: And I'm still a, a full-time W2. I have uh, an ample amount of vacation like a lot of uh, our radiology college, colleagues do. And I do about four to six weeks of locums a year. Um, been with uh, a single group now and it's, uh, it's been really fantastic. Um, I just want to get uh, you know right into some of the, uh, some of the questions that we've been asked. Um, I know a lot of your uh, a lot of your DMs have been filling up, you know not, not in the way that our celebrity friends DMs are <laughs> filling up, uh, but mostly with uh, people who have questions about you know locum Tenons medicine. like what since, since this episode went off, I've been getting about uh, one or two questions a week consistently since the episode came out. I know it's been really popular amongst medical students, residents, fellows, and industry, um, and we we just have to acknowledge that open uh, openly. And I want to talk a little bit about a conversation that Kavi uh, told me that he had recently um, with people in in the the actual locum tenens industry, non physicians who work in placing physicians into uh, hospital settings. So, can you can you talk a little bit about that, Kavi?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's actually all stemmed from Twitter. Um, on my blog account, MyMonkeyMD, Monkey uh, I had an exchange with a recruiter actually, it wasn't even a recruiter, it was a founder of a staffing agency who works specifically with radiology. And it was pretty interesting because um, he made some comments about, you know, the industry and what he's seeing. And, um, you know, I actually sent him a message because having lived this life like you, Vishal, I, I kind of wanted to learn more about it. I think the last time we recorded, um, I was using a recruiter at that time, kind of like what you were when mm-hmm. you first started. Mm-hmm. And you kind of inspired me to to move beyond <laughs> that. So I still do uh, for yeah. anyone that's, it's the way to go. We, we definitely believe that here, but you know, there is some value that these guys have without a doubt. And I wanted to learn a little bit more about how he does things um, because, okay. you know, this is their livelihood and that's what they do. So I actually had a really good conversation with him about his business model. Huh. And I, I learned a few interesting facts, which I think are actually pretty generalizable to the entire industry that I'd want to share with our listeners. Cause I think it's important that
4: we as physicians, we all know this. So, so this recruiter staffs exclusively interventional radiology or all radiology seats?
3: Yeah, great question. All radiology seats. I see. Okay.
4: But a pretty good
3: proportion of his business, I think it's up to 50% is IR.
4: Okay. Good to know. So he knows the market landscape relatively well at this point.
3: Definitely. We're talking about 100 different clients coast to coast. I see. Okay. So it was pretty remarkable. I, I think the first question I asked him, and I wasn't expecting him to give me a response, but he did, which, which I credit him for. I asked him what his profit margins were. And wow. Yeah, I know. Straight off the bat, huh? Bold, straight off the bat, yeah. Just went straight for it, <laughs> yeah. And you know why not? What do I have to lose? <laughs> and he was very gracious, and he actually told me between thirty and forty percent. Wow. Yeah. So I want, I want you know, listeners to think about that. That's a lot.
2: I found something pretty similar as well. <laughs> I think that there are um, gamuts of interventional radiology or staffing companies in general, um, and uh, there are a few that I think are some of the legacy, larger ones that cover multidisciplinary. Um, efforts around the country. And I I think they have, well, there's probably uh, the jury's out on it, but maybe a more respectable or healthy 20%. But there are a number of other firms that really take some of their clients to the cleaners, I guess would be the right term. And I've seen up to 50%, uh, 50%. That's that's fascinating. Yeah. And and, and I, I think we touched on this last time. There's also a component of even if they know that that's not going to secure the physician, they still have their contract with the client, which hmm. then prevents any particular physician with working with that client if they've ever been formally presented. Um, ah, it's, a, so, it's a major pitfall that I advise anyone to look into, You know the idea of presentation to a client. So if
4: the file has been presented, they hold a non-compete prior to the physician ever being employed there? That's correct. So the physician has no contract. That's correct. That's with. This, this, I'm not with an this attorney, hospital. so I have
2: to say this. With I have to give that disclaimer. But that's my understanding: is that it's essentially a sandwich agreement. You've got they've that's got it. an agreement with the physician if you were to sign, and then an agreement with the client. The client's the first person that they sign the agreement with. Wow. Um. So they're double protected in the case where they have a physician and a client both sign. But if they sign with just one, the client, um, even though you have not signed an agreement with them because maybe you never work there, um, their agreement with the client still says we presented this doctor to you. You can't work with them
4: directly. That is fascinating. What it what it what it brings to mind to me is that essentially you're paying someone multiples uh, and and on a daily rate a part of your work because they had a head start. Correct. Is there another way to to think about that or to phrase that or are you uh, are, are you sort of seeing it a similar way, Kavi?
3: I see it a similar way. Now now you got to think about it from their shoes. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. So from from their shoes, they're they're thinking, hey, I'm going out there and I'm establishing relationships. Okay. okay? I'm creating opportunities for other physicians to work. And I'm not going to lie. I mean, Michelle, you probably see this in your own life, but this stuff's hard. It is. Yeah, It's a lot of business development. It's a lot of networking. It's a lot of phone calls. It's getting connected with the right people. So I think one can make an argument from the locums agency side is, hey, we're doing that for you. Okay. All you have to do is show up and do a good job. Right. Yep. Now. That's not to say that we as physicians can't do that. We can absolutely do that, but there is a price to be paid for it. Now, whether or not you think 30 to 40% is reasonable, that's up to any given person. But the reason I bring up that number is not to say that locum's agencies are terrible, right? right? But it's to really democratize this information because Mm -hmm. I think all Mm -hmm. physicians should know what's at stake.
2: Absolutely. And if I could just piggyback off that thought process. It took me a while, and of course, I'm I'm pretty loud spoken on my opinion on this matter. So take what mm-hmm. I say with a grain of salt. But that's I, why you're here,
4: man. I don't I like even
2: the way you describe that it, you're you're talking about it from a physician's perspective, which is what is the service that they provide. It is my opinion, or at least my limited opinion, that we're not really their their client. The client is the the entity that needs our services, and so from their perspective, they probably feel very comfortable charging these rates because. They're allowing that institution to tap into their vast network of doctors. And by network, that can mean anything from the names and emails and phone numbers, which I'm sure you get a lot of emails and phone calls, um, uh, as well as knowing which states they're licensed in and who's actively doing locums work. So there's some value, uh, but boy, I really think their target audience is the entity that needs the services and the physicians are sort of... um, An ancillary thought process. And that's borne out with my experience with how these contracts are structured.
3: I I agree with that. I I actually echo that. I mean, I think, I think we see that. I think, I don't know how your interactions with, with recruiters or Shaman, you, you know, I know you have, you guys both have interactions all the time, but Mm. oftentimes it's something to the extent of somebody from South Florida will send you a text message and they'll ask you what your rate is and that's it. Yeah. Uh, There's no discussion about the job or anything else or your motivations or your interests or whatever true value you can really add to a practice no, no location, location. Yeah. what's your rate yeah. right because how are these guys making money they're making money getting you know contracts from hospitals yeah. largely so mm-hmm.
4: no question about it so where what's where does this go right this we're mm. in a transitional period yeah. the the demand is increasing the the physician shortage is increasing we we know that that's fact that's published that's all of medicine not just interventional radiology Let's make this podcast translatable to other specialties, yeah. right? This episode. Maybe we'll be the most downloaded for 2023. We'll, let's, let's see. I mean,
2: Not maybe, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Oh, we will. Yeah. Right.
4: Yeah. How does this translate into the next 10 years of a physician shortage with locum's companies as, I mean- you may say that you know they're 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 not a, they're not you know a middleman. I, f- I forget your exact phrasing, but you know to me to to me, they are to a degree a middleman. I, I do not use one. I'll, I'll be you know very forthright. I only do a few weeks a year. I have yeah. a fantastic relationship with the group, and now the hospital that I work in we'll get into that in a little bit. I don't believe in it. I think my rates are very fair, yeah. um, and the hospital agrees that the, my rates are very fair. So I found it to be an unnecessary step um in the middle outside of people who simply don't have the networking to find contracts. So a big part of this conversation on on round two of locums is how to actually find the job and to secure the job. Yeah, that's going to be a big theme here. Can I because, add something in the backdrop please, that might do, yeah.
2: give some perspective? This is just an N of one, one thing that I've seen recently. One of my clients uh, or potential clients, um, and I don't know if you've seen this, caveat with anyone else, but is now restricted by a exclusive locums contract. Yes. Uh, yes. And I don't know if you've seen that elsewhere. Well, it was the first time that I saw it.
3: Yeah, and I've seen it.
2: Um, mm-hmm. uh, that is something that maybe for our audience members who are maybe not on the physician side, but, or maybe are physicians, but maybe thinking about locums, to think about the pitfalls of uh, an exclusive contract, um, I can tell you just anecdotally, they're still struggling to fill this, these spots. And it really puts everybody in a pickle and it leaves me without an option to work with this client unless I
4: go through the agency. Well one one sorry one th- to interject. I just wanted no, to th- as a it,
2: backdrop of maybe something that's changed in the market. I've not great seen point. that before
4: it's a great point and we and we can start with that. Yeah. Why don't we start with that? So um so I work for a large group. Yeah. That's uh you know my my group is local, yeah. but everything is national yeah. um on a on on the business administrative side. Yeah? yeah? I mean I'm not going to name names. Yeah. And it's it's been a very pleasant experience for me. Yeah. I, I have a wonderful life and I enjoy it very much and I have a lot of freedom as this group and similar groups like it Um, Gain more hospital contracts, and now have locums arms, which I'm sure you both have interacted with personally. What does that do to locums market?
2: Well, uh, Kevin, I'm curious what you think. Uh, The client that I'm talking about is not a national entity. Well, they kind of are, but uh, um, they're looking to source a local need. And uh, this is not a, oh boy, I don't know how to describe this. This is not a locums agency in name only. It's an actual locums agency. I think what you're referring to is some of the national entities have their own arms, mm-hmm. um, and I think that is their response to some of these crazy rates uh, or profit margins that that some of the agencies can take. I, I use the word crazy, you know. Again, it's all up for debate. Uh, I have my own opinion. I've been loud spoken about it, but I think those are two different things. Okay. The the agencies that are agencies in name only, but really are tied at the hip with the actual national entity, uh, and then. Um, an actual agency yeah, important distinction yes
4: yeah. Yeah. yeah okay um so so, so do you, you
2: want to know you're asking me what what i think about those ones that are tied at the hip yes i think that's a pretty reasonable market solution to some of the rates that they're paying um and they take care of a lot of the and i've i've worked for both of them I'll, full disclosure mm. um uh, they solve a lot of the things that the locums agencies provide um, but at a much lower cost so I don't personally view that as working with an agency, quote unquote, I view that as bypassing an agency um, is the way I look at it. I, I guess that might be me <laughs> trying to be consistent with my own opinion on using agencies, but that's what I have found. Okay. So,
3: you know, I'm maybe a little different in that I've, I've made the decision for myself not to work with national groups. So I, I don't actually interact with private equity backed organizations. I do that for philosophical reasons. But I've also have done it because I've actually found it to be a huge pain in my rear, trying to interact with some of these groups. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie. There's a lot of administrative bloat. There's a lot of miscommunication, layers of administration. And, and this was actually from trying to get on staff at one hospital to provide locums coverage. Mm -hmm. And that experience actually kind of taught me that, yeah, I'm not doing that again. Now, you know, the problem with national groups is there's a lot of heterogeneity, right? So, Shamin, I think, you know, where you are in Chicago, you know, you, you have a great group. And I think you guys have a culture, you know, it is what it is. But that's not the case for, for a lot of these practices that have been bought up. Mm-hmm. And I think from the mm-hmm. locum standpoint, it can be pretty challenging trying to interface with some of these practices. So for me, I think when it comes down to the discussion of how do we secure contracts, I've learned for myself that it's always more sustainable probably easier to interact directly with physicians, okay?
4: With so physicians?
3: With physicians, with IR physicians specifically. Okay. So if I'm able to be connected with an IR in a certain hospital who has a need, he needs coverage, he or she, whoever, right? They need help. If I'm able to talk with them and they get to know me, I get to know them, then they can get me in touch with the right person to make it happen. And that's been probably the most sustainable organic way of doing it mm. so, for sure.
2: yeah so that's uh great thoughts and uh i wish that i could say that i have uh taken well i've moral high ground i, I tend to I, I haven't signed an employment agreement with any of the national entities for sim- many of the similar reasons but i also do provide locum services for many of them often through their kind of quasi agencies mm-hmm. um and a few times directly with with the actual local group although it's part of the national group uh and i would agree with you there are so many connections that I think most of the audience members um, are undervaluing. For example, here at SIR, every single person here is a potential contact. Any group looking for, and I said this on the last podcast, any group looking for a permanent doctor could very well be looking for a locums doctor. Mm-hmm. Maybe they've never had to even think about it because the market has changed so much, but maybe open to it. And meeting them in person, for example, at SIR, huge difference. Um, just anecdotally, I can tell you, uh, last week I went to a, a device company conference mm-hmm. um, and uh, been texting with a guy just about a potential job in maryland and uh, i said hey maybe next week i'll be in your area we should meet up mm-hmm. i'll look across the table as i walk i texted it right as i walked into the meeting i said at this table look across to him we met at the conference and uh yeah. that relationship now is way more secure than it would have been just over the phone and um as it turns out this device is something that i've used quite a bit so i obviously walked away looking like someone that knows what the hell he's doing so the uh, bard, the the barred power pick line. I got you. Yeah, got you. Exactly. I got you. So, and I would agree with Shyameth. You know, the 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 middlemen and the bureaucracy that is ultimately part of some of these national entities, or even really any system for that matter, is necessary, and they will facilitate the steps. But the ultimate contact is the radiologist or the interventional mm-hmm. radiologist on site. Now, I will tell you, because I, I do probably a lot more hospital work than you do. Some of the places that I that I've done services at are in tatters. They may not even have a radiologist. They're oh, wow. literally sourcing entire departments via locums agencies or locums doctors. So that presents a problem where you may be talking to someone that's not a radiologist. One particular site that I just spoke with, I I was working directly with the CMO, so, not a radiologist. So what was
4: your point of contact there? The CMO. Your point. So you reach? Are you cold calling? I oh, mean how are you? No, how are I called the preparing? radiology
2: department. Got I, uh, I think a PA picked up, and uh, I was like, hey, I. I think you guys are looking for some locum's work and they said yeah and next thing I know I'm getting a uh, a phone call from the chief medical officer so some some places are more destitute than others in terms of how high up the chain their service requirements are going I, I was shocked to hear a CMO yeah
4: managing a radiology staffing situation, but that's just how that's the situation that they were in I mean at this point with the with the amount of contracts that both of you have secured you're you know you're you're both pretty much um you know Professional at this level, yeah. I, I would say. Uh, you know, th- this is this is not a this is not a side gig for yeah, either of you no, at this point. That's correct. You know, this is a, you're you're a professional locums yeah. physicians. Walk me through your first few times procuring a contract, who your points of contact were, and who you. Who you, who you seeked out? Were you, were you seeking only radiologists? I know, I know, Kavi, your initial experience was through an agency. But That's Michelle, right. I believe you were 100% independent from, from no, jump. No, my right? first contract, You're my very first, first and okay. only
2: contract was through an agency. Okay. And uh, and then I moved very promptly from there to direct contact. So if you want, I can talk about my first direct contact was yes. actually, um, was in the same state, Indiana, as my first agency contract. So I already held the state license. Right. I forget exactly how I connected with this group, but somebody... Somewhere posted something on some thread about a job in Indiana. Um, I messaged that person, and then I quickly got in touch with the president of the group, um, and I secured, you know, months of work that way. Oh, and no. uh, I have sort of perfected my techniques. So I'm happy. I shouldn't say perfected. Um, you know, there's still a lot to learn. Yeah, still refining. Yeah. My philosophy, and I'm curious, Kavi, your opinion on this. But mm-hmm. I'm the contractor as opposed to a potential employee, so it behooves me to make the first offer. It's how I look at it. So, I generally offer all of my clients a term sheet, um, and I sign it, um, and then I have them sign it back. And it's a
4: quasi-legally binding, but the idea is that, like, they take me seriously. Do but you, I have, do you mm-hmm. have that worked out? Sorry to interrupt. Mm-hmm. You have that worked out, and have you had that run by a lawyer before you ever present it to your uh, client?
2: No. These, I don't. The, the, this uh, It's a document that I created on my own, okay. and it goes over. Uh, I define some terms. Again, these are probably more important for me as, as a hospital. You I mean, work in the hospital as well, mm-hmm. Covey. But- uh, you know, how do we define a work day? How do we define call? How do we define a work week? Uh, and it depends on the client's needs. But I often incentivize them to keep me for a week or at least a full set of weekdays, as opposed to just one individual day. But if they need that, I, I structure it that way in case they just need me for a Monday. Mm-hmm. It's usually not very rewarding for either party, but I, I want to make sure we have that defined. Um, so work day, work week, call. I define these terms, yep. um, and then uh, and then go into the rates. Talk about cancellation, termination, which I think are two different well, termination and uh rescheduling, I think are two different things. Termination is meaning we're gonna end our relationship, and scheduling is uh, hey, we no longer need you, but we don't wanna end the agreement, or or you can't make it, um, but we don't want to end the agreement. So uh, those are two different terms the way that I approach it. Um, I talk about uh travel costs, reimbursements, uh reimbursable expenses, licensing, uh and um, malpractice Malpractice. And then I sign at the bottom and I usually have to leave a line for them to sign and that just I think it it let's them know that you this ain't your first rodeo, and um and it gives them something that either they can take to an attorney to to hammer out into a formal contract, or I think once I did it myself, but most of the time they have legal counsel that can hammer that in, with language that they're used to putting into their standard contracts. Understood. And yeah.
4: and you're and and you have only done hospital based work. That's correct. I haven't done correct? OBL work, which yeah. I
2: you know again I for those who are just listening, I'm bowing towards Kavi because I, I I think it's fascinating what he's doing from the OBL space, and I really do hope that we get to talking about you know, what would it take for someone like me to come into your field, and I'm happy to talk about what it would take for someone to come into my, you know, type of uh, interventional radiology. And of course, Covey and I are separated by a number of years of experience. I'm, you know, less experienced than him, which I think plays a big deal.
4: Yeah. And so, I I mean, my my experience, uh, you know, just, I I know I'm hosting hosting this thing, but I'm much more similar to you. So my locums has all been secured by myself. Um, and then I do internal in my national group right. at other sites where they need help. Um, so I have daily rates there. Right. But again, that's all through a W-2. So it's just on my regular W-2 full-time paycheck. Right. It's just an added bonus. Um, but my, my pure 1099 locums work, I met somebody on Facebook. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I I met somebody who posted on the IR docs group on Facebook, yeah. who said, you know, we're, we're in this town, we have this need, uh, we can't hire, you know, um, a fourth guy. Uh, I have three amazing, you know, I have two amazing partners, and we just, you know, we we just want a little more vacation to see our kids. It's it's been one of the most rewarding uh, relationships I've ever had. Uh, I mean, not even just um, in in a financial sense, um, but really, you know, it's 150 miles away from where I live, so I am away from my my wife and children. But the relationships that I've developed with these three IRs is phenomenal. I've I've learned new techniques. I've seen how different uh, models work. I have done this at two other sites as well, but this particular one is the is the benchmark by which. I think all IRs can secure healthy relationships with uh with with companies if they are hospital based. I'm with you in bowing to Kavi in being able yeah. to procure the OBL setup for locums coverage at a pretty early stage in your career. You know, you are not you are you, you are not 10, 15 years out, you're, you're within your first five years. Right? Maybe just mm-hmm. as a reminder, I
3: should say I'm, I'm four years out of training. Four yeah, years. Yeah, got... Five here. So not, right. not that much more experience. It seems like you have way more than I do. <laughs> yeah.
4: A lot more prostates for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seen <laughs> a lot more prostate. Felt
3: like I lived a lot these last five years. So, yeah. you know, it's actually really funny um, because I, I think the process for me getting OBL contracts, no different than the process um, for all of us getting hospital contracts, comes down to the relationship with the practice owner. And I make the conscious decision to work specifically with physicians who own and operate their practices. And it just comes down to networking. I think I've been lucky in that my opportunities so far, it's not something that I had to seek out. They actually came to me. Yeah. Hmm. So I think, you know, it was really facilitated by activity, not only in SIR, but in OEIS. I got to meet a lot of people. I think- That's a great conference. I've been to Yeah. Being being vocal, um, the blog, has connected me with a lot of people. Mm. I secured two locums contracts via the blog of all really? places. Wow. Yeah. So just kind of getting your, your name out there and just being active in the space certainly helps. But I thought everybody
4: thought you were a menace based on the blog. <laughs> I,
3: think, I think they still do, but it turns out I'm actually a productive <laughs> member of society. Oh, so. that's all right, okay.
4: So you can secure a job, I got you, okay. If you have <laughs> hope, then we all do. <laughs> I see, I see. Okay, so, so, so this is interesting. If you are procuring uh, directly through the individual operators at these OBLs, what has you, I'm sorry, I'm jumping here a little bit, but what is your relationship been with OBL practices that are not 100% physician owned, where the where the business entity is not run through physicians?
3: Yes. I actually have one experience like that. This is actually my first experience and maybe in some ways akin to using a recruiter to get, you know, to get your first hospital contract. And, you know, I'm going to preface this by saying that I have the utmost respect for that physician there. I think physicians who decide to use managerial services companies or, you know, give up equity, everybody's got their own reasons. So it's not here to to judge, but to really talk about the process in terms of actually working locums. Mm -hmm. And I think what I realized for myself is in order to actually work in this facility, I got connected via the managerial services organization Mm -hmm. and I already had relationships with people in that organization. And I think on the whole, you know, the work that I got to do in this facility was great. I, I loved it. It was, you know, high-end peripheral arterial care, venous disease, things like that. No questions about the clinical care. But I think the biggest pain point for me was actually communication. There's layers of communication. Yeah. And, and I think for those of us who are so passionate about the OBL space, we gravitate towards OBLs because we do not want to deal with all the baggage that comes with large healthcare facilities, yeah. right? That's like a huge thing for me. It just drives me bonkers. I just want to like run away from that as you know, quick as I can. So yeah. when you find yourself in a situation in what should really be the promised land, but you end up having to go through similar hoops as you would in a hospital, it can be pretty off-putting. So that's not to say that it's not the right opportunity for the right person, mm-hmm. but I think for me, I'd rather just deal directly with somebody who owns and operates their own facility. Understood. They'll tell me when they're taking vacation. They'll tell me when they need me. I know their practice patterns. I don't have to communicate through some third party or two different administrators. It just makes for a clean, healthier relationship.
4: Maybe too personal a question. Do you charge doctors less than hospitals?
3: I actually do. I actually do. And that's a decision that I make. I actually make less money in the OBL than I do working for healthcare systems. Okay. But I do charge physicians less. Now, that's not to say that you can't make more, but you want to prove yourself, right? So if you're able to help bring in business and if you can be efficient and do cases and be productive, then you'll be rewarded handsomely.
2: I have to hesitatingly agree with Covey. I I approach my private groups very differently than I do hospitals, uh, than I do national corporate entities. Um, And some of that just comes back to my own personal opinion. And if you're not a private group, maybe important thing to think about from what both of us are saying is that uh, maybe the person that contacts you or deals with you directly is a physician. I think it just, I don't know, it softens my approach when I know it's somebody, it's one of my own, someone that I, we have shared training and, and shared uh, background. It just changes my overall outlook. And mm-hmm. I, I definitely find myself treating my private groups different than I do hospitals and, yeah. and private equity groups.
3: Yeah. I, I think there's no question about yeah. it. I think it's, it is one of your own And I think for me, I'll say about, you know, the OBL space, you know, it's not like I have like decades of experience doing like thousands of atherectomies or whatever. I've probably done more than most people in in my level of, you know, career, if you will. But a lot of the people I work with, they're my mentors, right? They're people I look up to. They teach me a lot. Mm. Some of them have been guests on this podcast. So, you know, it's been, it's been excellent. So I I kind of- So you feel
4: like charging less is both you paying it forward for them giving you some education as well?
3: Absolutely.
2: And- I'm going to guess maybe sometimes you get something out of them as well. They may be available on site or maybe by call, and maybe if you're working at one of their facilities for an opinion. Uh, and I can tell you as someone that works at places where I'm often the solo guy, uh, man, not having uh, a second person to just bounce an idea off of is a tremendous uh, disservice sometimes to myself and some of my patients. So I think that's a, that's definitely a role. To most of my private groups that I work with, just from a hospital perspective, I'm not alone. But the private equity and hospital base, I'm often alone on site, and so there's something to be said about yeah. about that.
4: This makes a lot of sense. I think I think these are really important questions that that touch on what people have been asking us, you know, informally yeah. uh, through Twitter and Instagram and yeah. other other media, uh, you know, for the, for the last few few months since our last one came out. You know, one thing that you touched upon, Kavi, um, and one thing that, uh, you know, uh, Vishal, you definitely have opinions on as well, is when you go to a facility and, um, you know, I actually have a previous Backtable episode where I talked about building a skill set outside of what I was, what I did in training. Fantastic episode, by the way. Uh, it was not the number two episode of 2022. <laughs> Should have been but, number one. Right. <laughs> but we hope to achieve those goals with this one. Uh, uh, my question to you is, to, to you guys both, is how, how do you gain that comfort? How do you... prove? So first of all, how do you gain that comfort? Is it pure, you know, going into the coal mine with a match? Or is it I am proving myself slowly to a group of physicians who will then vouch for me to administrative, or in the case of an OBL, just, just to the single, to single or group of physicians that own the OBL? How does, how does that relationship work where you secure the contract?
3: Yeah. I think, you know, a couple of things. I think, I think OBL and hospital is a little different. I think, you know, Michelle, I haven't done nearly as many hospital contracts as you. I've I've only done a couple, but I think for the hospital, for me, you know, that contract tends to be a lot, at least in my experience, has been a lot easier. It's been a lot less proving of myself per se. I think really the proving of myself was just having a philosophical, you know, heart to heart conversation with the IR, Mm. um, you know, them understanding like, Hey, I think this is a guy who I'd want to be partners with right and then that goes a long ways and then actually showing up and doing good work is is the other thing i think i think for the obl it's a little different i think you have to have a concrete skill set and be able to show that you can be safe and effective and profitable in that environment before you even get there and i don't think that would have been possible for me had i not already helped build an obl and done that i think it's pretty hard i'm not saying it's impossible nothing's impossible but i think it'd be pretty hard to just you know show up and say hey i'm going to i'm going to do these four multi-level PAD cases and knock out these vein ablations and seeing these four consults, that's Mm -hmm. that's probably not going to happen. Or if it does happen, you're probably not doing a great job. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think for me, at least in my career, it involved being in the hospital for a couple of years, actually cutting my teeth, spending four hours to do an atherectomy, spending three to Mm -hmm. four hours to do a PAE, then taking the skill set from there, going to the OBL, and then doing hundreds of them, cutting my teeth some more and getting faster and safer and efficient. And, and then finally getting the point where I can actually market myself to people and say, hey, I could actually do it.
4: Mm-hmm. Can, yeah, can I ask a question
2: up. to him? Because uh, uh, I have a, a, a single page document that I send out to all my clients, it's what I call a locums profile. It's got my photo, where I trained, and what I consider area of expertise. And then every site that I work at, I solicit reviews from everyone on site. Wow, um, usually at least idea. once a year. And I have a bar graph that shows you know, how am I overall. How am I in communication? How am I in friendliness? How am I in actual clinical skill, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and Phenomenal then I have,
4: idea, by the uh, way. Phenomenal. At the bottom,
2: I have little, actually, I have, I have people on the back of the form write down actual word comments. I actually tell them, please be negative. That's some of, I don't put that in my my document, but I find some of that to be the most helpful um, uh, verbal fee- or nonverbal feedback that I get, especially for some of the more experienced techs or nurses that maybe they're even experienced physicians because they, they tend to give you very good feedback. And anyways, I put that together and that's what I propose and it says how many states I've done, how many procedures I've done, et cetera, et cetera. I give that to all my clients to let them know that I am I know what I'm doing and I've done right. this for a while. Do you do something like that with your OBLs? Like, do you have to – go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry I, to take over the questions. I was just curious. a great idea. I think, it's great. I
4: think it's
3: great. I think you've given me a good idea of I what I probably <laughs> I'm like, like, I'm should do. Like, I'm definitely updating my to start CV. start selling yeah, some of these It's like, wow. <laughs> <like, laughs> well, I find
2: that it's better than a CV. The CV yeah. contains a lot of information. This in is very locum specific. It's very locum specific and it's one page in it. Hits the high high notes. So. I love it. Um,
3: yeah, you know, I haven't. Okay. I yeah. haven't. I probably should, yeah. I think you just changed the playbook, honestly. Yeah, that's, yeah that's, you just, that's you just very, did. Very I mean, that's, that's actually really fantastic. I think mine's just been word of mouth. Okay. It's been, you know, one person's going to call another person and say, hey, is this guy a joker or not? Yeah. And, you know, usually the answer is no. And and then it works out. But I like the way you've done it. Yeah. I think that's great.
4: Yeah. I mean, Kavi, we, we, we've had a couple of conversations online um, where you've uh, you've connected through device reps.
3: I have. Isn't that right? That's uh, right. Can
4: you, can you speak a little bit about that?
3: So this is actually my hospital contract in South Dakota was, was via a device rep, you know, it was a device that I used in the hospital when I was in Minnesota, um, had good support from them, did a fair number of cases, uh, with this device. And, um, I didn't know about an opportunity that presented itself in South Dakota, but they, you know, one of the guys called me and said, Hey, you know, one of, one of my buddies who's an IR here in this hospital needs some help. Do you think you can do some, do some work for them? and and that was that was great because that actually proved to be an introduction to that ir who i probably wouldn't have met otherwise Mm -hmm. and then i got to know them and then we kind of hit it off and you know next thing you know i'm you know i'm committed to be there for like eight months so pretty pretty awesome one thing i've
4: definitely learned you know being five years out from training is that the people who know things the first in all of medicine are the device revs i think this was on a previous episode with uh with aaron and and Chad sanders uh but i mean they know yeah, they know everything. They're a great and resource, and they're just the best resource. And they really don't have any skin in the game as to as to who's covering what market. It's it's mostly just they'll they'll try to hook the the, the doctors up who they think do a good job with with opportunities that they think will will match. So, can
2: I add this two makes a lot of that? sense. Yeah, please. Do. Um, I I've been in a similar position with a uh, large mechanical thrombectomy company, we'll say. Um, and I agree with you wholeheartedly, which is, um, they really. They have no skin in the game. They, they just want to help out a lot of the times. Um, and, and actually, maybe I would maybe make the argument sometimes they do have skin in the game. So at one of the sites that I most recently worked at, and I think it's probably coming to an end, I launched their thrombectomy um, program. Yes. And so they know now that I'm an experienced user. And uh, if they know of any sites that don't have anyone or maybe one of their colleagues in a different state it knows that there's a hospital in town that doesn't have an experienced user or any interest and there's no one doing it you know, they'll connect you up. And that's happened once or twice. I've made some contacts that way. um, And uh, one of them may come to fruition here in Maryland, like I was talking to you about. Secondly, just to piggyback about reps, um, techs and nurses are also very valuable. Many of them are traveling. Good point. Um, I have personally never um, uh, got a contract from a tech or nurse Mm -hmm. who went somewhere else. But I have brought techs and nurses to sites because I've worked with them somewhere else. Uh, One happened most recently in Florida where, I worked with this uh, traveling nurse at one place, and she was just fed up with it. Found that I was going somewhere else, and she says, hey, do they need someone there? I was like, yeah, they probably do. And uh, next thing I know, two months later, she's there. So um, <laughs> uh, there's a whole network of, of not just doctors, but phys- you know, techs and nurses as well that can be reliable. So... Uh... So episode three is
3: going to be Michelle's uh, tech staffing agency. <laughs> yes, yes. But, but you know, I, I think it's a great comment, Michelle. I, I I want to kind of touch again on the device companies because I do think that you know, look, I'm probably one of the most cynical people out there. There's no question about it, right? I, I write what I write. I believe what I believe, which is fine. But. You know, I do think at the end of the day, you got to understand the game, the games that we play as a physician, Mm. right? And that we, the ecosystem in which we live in, and there is a business argument to be made for you know staffing good, you know hospitals and having quality physicians in those hospitals, right? And some device reps are going to be motivated. They're they're going to have accounts that were you know really really profitable, and all of a sudden you know physician leaves. Yeah. you know, their numbers go down and they live and die by their quarterly statements, yes. right? That's just the game that they have to play. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think a lot of them are well-intentioned, right? I think a lot of them, you know, truly, you have great relationships with them. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one thing I learned is it's, it's funny you mentioned um, mechanical thrombectomy. You know, I think it's like anything in life, you kind of have to follow the money. And once you realize what the incentives are for people, you know, you can, you can actually use that to benefit all parties, right? Yeah. So you see that with mechanical thrombectomy when it comes to hospital contracts. Mm-hmm. You know, an IR physician leaves in a certain facility. Maybe they were a high user of a certain device. You can get connected that way. You see it in the OBL space. You see it with atherectomy, right? You see it with embolization. So I think I think that's all important. I think it it behooves the listener to kind of understand what kind of the macro healthcare economic landscape is like and how it applies to these different settings.
2: I, I think what we're describing here is, I shouldn't say new, but certainly novel, I suppose, uh, or adjustment to a new way of practicing interventional radiology. I don't think anybody thought about this type of IR locum's work um, leading to some of the connections that we're talking about, Um, Mm -hmm. uh, whereas typically that would be reserved for maybe a very productive private physician or an academic physician. So Mm -hmm. it's been very gratifying for me.
4: So I want to take that to to two questions, um, because after my next question, I do want to talk about rates, specifically yeah. about rates, which I think, you know, uh, listeners are, are really interested in because we are experienced people and uh, we have negotiated our own contracts, so they want to know what we're charging, essentially, at least a floor. Um, but the first thing I want to talk about is just talking about macro, you know, macro changes, like uh, waves of change that are coming on the on these forces that are really changing the way that we practice and, 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 and how hospitals view IR as well, right? So... The society is also changing. We're here at SIR, mm-hmm. you know, everyone is talking about the new training paradigm. We've now graduated our, what, two classes, two full classes all the way through of the integrated IR program. The training paradigm is changing. We, we, we live in a time where people are going more towards teleradiology mm-hmm. in the diagnostic field, mm-hmm. and IRs are still considered a commodity under radiology. Yeah. Yes. So... How does this affect locums? How does the new training, it's a very broad question. So take it however you will. How does the new training paradigm shift and the society's shift in a clinical IR? It's gonna be a long shift. How does that affect locums? Staffing, filling spots, all of this.
3: So, you know, I can start from the OBL side. And I actually think when it comes to OBL locums, I, I think it makes it these opportunities harder to come by. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Because I think we're actually starting to see more young IRs coming out who want to be in OBLs, right? They want to be in OBL ASC practices, whether that's physician owned and operated, corporate, MSO, whatever, multidisciplinary, you name it. Outpatient medicine. Outpatient medicine. And you know, I feel like that is where we're going to be headed, right? I'm not saying that's like the end-all be-all answer to all of our problems. You still need a hospital to do good work. Certain types of patients have to be treated. But I think when it comes to OBL opportunities, I think, you know, we're, we're going to be seeing more full-time employment in these settings. I think we're already starting to see it. So when it comes to staffing needs in the OBL, the biggest issue right now is, can you have an owner, operator, or a primary physician in any one of these facilities who's willing to take on a novice partner mm. to do this? Mm-hmm. That's the problem. It takes at least a few years to get up to speed on what's necessary to be safe and efficient in the OBL setting and you know there's always going to be opportunities to kind of fill staffing needs from that perspective but i think over time it's probably going to dwindle that's kind of my crystal ball which is admittedly always a little cloudy but i think when i when i think of obl i i think about it from that perspective i'd be curious michelle what you think about the hospital well Well, i
4: I, I just want to interrupt real quick i mean i mean you you it's a good point and you have your finger on the pulse i mean I, i i doubt there are many people here at sir who have as many contacts in both the inpatient and outpatient mm-hmm. world as you do. I have a ton in the inpatient world, but I have very few in the OBL world. So I, I, I think your perspective is, is, is going to be very well taken.
2: And I want to touch base on the OBL stuff you're talking about because I think I may mention this in the first episode. That was my intention out of training was to open one in Atlanta and didn't end up working for a variety of reasons I described in the first podcast. But I think you could make the argument that the OBL-ASC topic in interventional radiology is a recent one and it's a developing topic that represents a change that the field wants to make. They want to move into the outpatient sphere, own their patients, et cetera, et cetera. And, so, um, and then, of course, you're seeing private equity take over a lot of radiology. You're also seeing a lot of teleradiology. So I view locums and it's, um, I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but just anecdotally, I feel like there's a lot more interest in locums radiology, interventional or diagnostic combined, is just a representation of the shifting in the field and people trying to figure out what they want. Now, whether locums radiology or interventional radiology in this case is a permanent thing um would i think very much differ from the obl space versus the asc space i mean the inpatient hospital space but like i'm excited for example we're talking about new trainees i'm excited for someone to say call maybe someone listen to this podcast right now maybe someone who's a resident right now at a dr ir program saying hey coffee's going down to florida to do a bunch of pae we don't do a whole lot of this here why don't you take me out there and let him, te- I mean, you could be developing an academic, I'm giving you some ideas, and maybe you've already thought of them. You could develop an academic affiliation. And, and this is, I think, one of the major pitfalls of our own field. And I'm not the first to say this. I know it. We talked about this last night. We and did. I've talked to a lot of people ad nauseum. You know, certain, not all programs offer everything, but there are mm-hmm. plenty of people out there who are doing high volume stuff. Why are we not and willing to, And willing to teach. Absolutely. I know some older people that are getting ready to retire who are going to take three decades worth of experience to the grave and uh, have they taught a soul they haven't had the opportunity to um so i was just
4: uh, i was just speaking uh, outside the the convention center with kavi with a with a pretty prominent member uh in the early career section yeah. we were speaking about how there's this new initiative amongst the early career se- section to have trainees come out to obls and learn uh and learn techniques yeah. i quickly mentioned that uh actually kavi yeah. um a friend of ours uh elie and 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 i uh, actually Posited this on the IR Facebook group uh, with about you know two to I mean what two to three hundred radiologists are, are on that group. Yeah, we actually said, please anonymously leave your email if yeah. you are willing to host medical students. Yeah. Uh, sorry, uh, residents yeah. who are not getting peripheral arterial disease yeah. exposure and yeah. and you are doing it. Initially, when it was anonymous, we had tons of people saying bump, follow me, you know all, all this stuff. As soon as we actually linked the spreadsheet. I think we got maybe 2 people who listed their email. Um we had tons of people interested from the resident side, yeah. but we had very few people who wanted to see it through and be, and 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 do it from the from the teaching standpoint when they had to put their name down really? and commit to it. It's it's a small sample size and yeah. it's it's just off Facebook. It was not done through the society. So this is purely anecdotal yeah. and it was it was more of a thought experiment than it was a formal opportunity. But I think this idea is real, yeah. and I, I think that there are plenty of people out there who are willing to upfront. I can't
2: speak about the OBL space, but I can tell you that I've hosted a medical student for training, um, which was something that sort of landed in my plate, and mm-hmm. I found it extremely gratifying. Um, and it made me actually go back to some primary literature before I taught any Black Pearls. Yeah. So um, uh, that's shocking to hear and maybe saddening if true. Uh, maybe not true, which would be hopeful. I'm yes, sure. I,
4: I'm hopeful that because it was on Facebook. Yeah, exactly. Uh, an I, group on I Facebook. think it
3: probably wasn't the right audience because I, I right. think, you know, it's still going to be mostly hospital-based to begin with. And I, I think maybe if we were to, you know, even an SIR it's still predominantly hospital-based. I think if we were to raise a similar suggestion to something like OEIS, we'd probably get more people. Yes. Yeah.
4: I wonder, to take it a step further, I wonder what you guys would think if we were to raise this idea to multi-specialty, Collaboration for trainees to go out to vascular surgery ASCs, to interventional nephrology ASCs, to interventional cardiology OBLs, and to see if we could get some of that restitution for, you know, for decades of innovating and collaborating that's a bold suggestion. over the last 40 yeah. years i yeah. mean you know, you know i mean as a society i mean the, the, the question is as a society is that something that we are willing to at least promote we, we don't have to we don't have to pound on doors yeah but is that something that that we would be open to suggestion to so and I'll, that's all I'm that's all i'm asking i'll
3: give my thoughts on that so you know you know i'm married to a vascular surgeon and i was actually a business partner with an interventional cardiologist and i actually learned most of what i know about pad not from an interventional radiologist but I was actually taught by an interventional cardiologist and even though the relationship didn't work out i mean i still credit him i mean he gave me a lot of information a lot of knowledge and i think look i I think the issue with multidisciplinary care in ir is this okay it's not the actual multidisciplinary aspect of it i think it's that irs need to elevate their game to be at the same level as the other specialties when it comes to comprehensive clinical care Mm -hmm. And I think if we can operate on the same level playing field, then I think there are opportunities for collaboration. And I think there's good people out there who'd be willing to do it, right? But I think if we're not going to accept that responsibility, and if we're just going to be there to just kind of crush some sweet multi-level PAD cases and that's it, then it's not going to be a great experience, my, my two cents. Maybe we can, t-
2: the original question, I think, was about training pathway and, how, and locums and how they intersect. And Covey obviously talked a lot about the OBL space. Yes. Um, I know I spoke in episode one about coming out of training and going directly into um, locums interventional radiology, which I probably didn't realize was that crazy of a thing until Covey was like, oh, wow, that's, uh, and that was the first time that I realized, yeah, that was kind of crazy to do that. Um, uh, I, maybe we can even talk about the kinds of phone calls that we have fielded. Definitely, I I have fielded phone calls from people that are still in training, people that are out of training, just Mm -hmm. out of training. I fielded, I think, one phone call from someone that is out of training but wants to go back for some additional uh, advanced interventional training. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even got a phone call from the attending uh, in my residency program who taught me a lot of what I know, Mm -hmm. which was very humbling. And I have to credit the podcast for that. It just made me feel like I've done something unique here. So I think that uh, you may see a lot of people coming out of training thinking about doing locums interventional radiology as they try to figure out where the market's going to go. It does come with some downsides. And you might talk more about the OBL space because I think that's a very different beast, especially because most interventional radiology training is still hospital-based, so it's not quite as big of a leap. But it is tough to come out and maybe use a product you've never used before, handle a condition you've never handled before, uh, not have any backup, um, and do working in an environment where uh, you haven't developed a reputation And I I defend a lot of locums doctors who may just come and maybe they work just one week a year, two weeks a year, Mm -hmm. maybe only have been to the site once or twice. It's a very different risk profile when you're doing a high risk procedure and no one knows your reputation. Mm -hmm. Very easy to ruin your reputation versus say you're coming to the site like where you're going or even some of my clients where I've been there steadily over many years. I I can afford to take some greater risks. So um, it's not easy, but but the advantages are definitely there. Um, uh, Financial for sure we're going to talk about that at some point, but, um, but also seeing a broad variety of cases, not everything. And I have to be upfront about that, but also learning how to develop new relationships. It it, it would pay dividends if you end up taking a permanent job afterwards.
4: Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's all great stuff. I I, th- I think we're running a little short on time. So yeah. I, I do want to get to, yeah. to, to what you just alluded to, yeah. um, which is a bit about, you know, what are we, what are we seeing out there these days? You know, I don't want to, I don't want to give like full exact numbers of what, where exactly your term sheets are, where, where your contracts are. I don't think that's fair to us or to locum's agencies um, or to hospitals, really. But the number one question I've gotten after this podcast, because people care about their, about their, their future, is what, what makes this worth my time? Yeah. Essentially, what is the floor? So let's do two scenarios. High cost of living, metropolitan area and sub- suburbs of that area, and then rural America. Okay. and then Kavi can uh, can add the third piece, which is OBL. which is OBL, which i which only only if you are comfortable with, because I know you deal directly with physicians, and most of those
3: absolutely. Yep. Um,
4: so uh, Vishal, if you want to talk a bit yeah. about rural, about rural hospital practices, yeah. um, like like groups plus hospital, just yeah. a floor number would be would be helpful to our listeners. Yeah,
2: I'll come out and say it. I mean, I think three thousand dollars a day is um, a pretty uh, reasonable floor. Okay. Um and all all inclusive. Uh, yeah, meaning a, a eight or nine hour workday. I will tell you some some clients have tried to convince me that it's an eight hour workday with a one hour lunch break, and I tell them politely to well, I tell them pl- alter alter y- that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, that doesn't. We all know that doesn't happen. Yes. I, I never get a lunch hour break. Um and uh, um usually it's a nine hour yes. day. You can define that however you want to. Some groups have a swing shift or something like that, but you just define that however you want to. And I I think that set core amount. 3,000 is, is pretty reasonable. Um, call pay,
4: call back rates, yeah. weekend coverage.
2: So this is, um, I think it depends on the volume uh, and whether you want to do a, a day-by-day pager fee to hold the pager um, or just a flat rate um, mm-hmm. for whether you get called in or not. Um, so you have to kind of make that decision based on the volume. And I, I tend to, m- many of my clients who are new, and that's when I'm usually starting the contract and writing the term sheet, I don't know what their call is really like. And so I tend to work with a, a daily rate, a daily pager fee, and then a callback rate. And the great thing about doing that is I often bleed the callback rate, which is me coming in for an overnight emergency with, with an overtime rate, and I just make them the same. So, um, you know, uh, I've seen the gamut for a weekday call, but I think 350 to 450 a night to hold the pager is a pretty respectable fee. And then just like our diagnostic colleagues, $400 an hour for anything you're doing outside of normal work hours is a pretty healthy rate. Um, and I am a full time guy, so I'm a full time locum. So I'm more concerned about sustainability and I tend to come back to my clients. And so for me, that I- I'm thinking about how, how can I make this to where it works for me and it works for them? Other people who maybe just work one week, one week period, uh, or maybe much more infrequently for them, there's a high upfront cost and a lot of stress knowing that you'll never get the dividends of being there many, many times. So you may change the rate for that and then uh, my weekends are valuable and i think that this is one place that many of us undersell ourselves and i i'm beginning to learn that maybe even i do myself um i think 1200 dollars a weekend day per day um is for, for, for 24 hours for 24 hour holding that coverage. pager and i i tend to work with most of my clients to cover diagnostic work as well that's something that i'm even exploring myself because i'm realizing i'm working a lot mm-hmm. and it is very different to just cover the pager uh, versus re-diagnostic and be on-site and then handle the IR emergencies as they come. Yes. Uh, very different stress level on the following week in terms of how rested you are.
4: Mm-hmm. Cove, anything to add?
3: Yeah, I think, I think with the hospital, I you know, um, actually, Michelle, you tell me a lot from the last podcast. I, I think, you know, it really depends on, on the setting. I think if it's a diagnostic radiology group that contracts with a hospital that has IRs, that's different from if you're hospital employed. I've gravitated only to hospital employed models because I find that it's actually more lucrative. Yeah for the locums IR. I think it's just better. Um, from that standpoint, I think, you know, I agree with the floor. I think if you're going to travel anywhere to provide a service in this current market, you shouldn't accept anything less than that. I think the ceiling could be a lot higher Absolutely.
4: and to give, you know, are you paying your own way? Are I you do, renting your own car?
3: I do. I pay my own expenses. I, I expense it LLC. We got that. We talked about that last time. And if I could just add
2: on that, mm-hmm. I've done both, uh, okay. where I have the client reimburse me for all expenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the hospitals are fairly familiar with that, but the private groups sometimes just want a lump sum figure
3: and you take care of that on your sure. own. Sure. Yeah,
4: so definitely. anyone who's not familiar with the structuring and, and what these guys are talking about, please listen to the first episode. Definitely. Yeah. Wow. L- exactly.
3: lots, of, lots of good pearls there. So I think, you know, I think the ceiling could be a lot higher. I think just to put this out there for, you know, listeners based on my conversations with, you know, founders of recruiting companies, staffers, you know, these guys are charging somewhere on the order of six, $7,000 a day, roughly, okay, with 30 to 40% profit margins. So you can just do the math and kind of see where that, where that runs in. So there's an opportunity to have a ceiling that's significantly higher than the floor that we mentioned. It has to be the right setting. I think the OBL is a different game. I think for the OBL, it really depends on the types of cases you're doing, the types of setting you're in, and your geography and your pair mix. So to just put some hard numbers out there, I think for anybody interested in dialysis interventions, you're typically talking about larger corporate-like entities. You are going to have a hard time supporting a rate of greater than $3,000 a day. It's probably going to somewhere fall between two and three. If you're working for vein clinics, it's probably going to be somewhere between the high twos so the low threes. If you're talking about embolizations or peripheral arterial disease, you're gonna be talking a lot higher. Generally you're gonna wanna come in at a floor of somewhere between, you know, twenty five hundred and thirty five hundred a day. I usually make it three thousand. Then you can have, you know, revenue that you generate above it, a percent of revenue. Typically that figure should probably fall somewhere between ten to twenty percent. So it just kind of depends on how busy you are.
4: This is I mean
3: People want to know. This this is really important stuff. And I'm stuff. glad that we're talking about Yeah. It,
4: and yeah. I, I, it's, it's, I, I thank you guys for being so transparent. Um, I will say that I, I fall within all of these, you know, a, a, and my contracts. I think that they're very fair. And from what I'm hearing from people who, who have reached out to me, this is exactly the content they want to hear. So uh, I try I not to get both. in the
2: business of undercutting colleagues, particularly, yes. for example, if I'm working at a group, a private group, for example, that needs... Uh, interventional radiology locums person that doesn't make any sense for me to work for less than their own existing right. interventional radiologist because that ultimately I'm demeaning their value and um, it'll come back and bite them. So yes. yeah,
3: yeah, I, I actually had an interesting story where I was uh, sharing dinner with with a friend of friend of ours. I was I was out in a certain market having dinner. Great great guy. He told me about this wonderful opportunity that that he just got a locums assignment for. It actually just happened to be the same opportunity that I was looking at, and uh, I was told that they no longer needed my services. And then I, and I was like, "Huh, oh, that sounds kind of familiar. And he's like, yeah, you know, I'm doing it for, you know, 80% of, yeah. of what I asked for. I was like, oh, there you go. And and I don't think it's any, like you said, Vishal, I don't think it's any IR trying to no. intentionally undercut. Yeah. No one's trying to intentionally undercut anyone, but I just don't think this information is transparent, yeah. right? Okay. We have to be transparent about it. Absolutely.
4: So, I mean, anecdotally, I, I believe that transparency helps because I have personal example of a friend who was looking uh, to join... As a, a locums uh, in a private medics group, where the senior partners were not being transparent and kicking everything up to admin, yeah. and both not only offering jobs as a 1099 independent contractor, which is truly what this person would have been as a you know just very part time locums like myself, you mm-hmm. know week week at a time, but also not really willing to negotiate rates and meet even halfway in the middle. I think having a transparent discussion really helps. You know, people like this, like my friend, who, who who truly don't know what the market is out there. You know, I mean, he mm-hmm. he 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 calls me, or he you know he calls Kavi, and and this th- this sort of thing is going to help a lot of IRs. I absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And so if I, I can you just
2: add an anecdotal story related to that, it creates a lot of resentment uh, as well. Yes. Um, I, I recently worked at a place where the director was recruiting a full-time interventional radiologist, um, and he himself had been serving that role and was not really re- responsible for the comp package. And uh, as he's done interviewing and keeping in touch with the client, he finds out what the package is and finds out the guy that he interviewed who was supposed to be a subordinate in, in, you know, in terms of the hierarchy was getting a much better offer than he was. And, uh, you know, this kind of price intransparency or opaqueness happens, particularly in corporate radiology, and it behooves you to keep your ear to the ground.
4: You know, guys, we've we've talked about uh, a whole range of topics. I think we've answered every question that I've got on uh, on Twitter and Instagram. If you guys have any, you know, promotional stuff for your your websites, your Twitters, your you know, your this or your that social media, please. Uh, uh, any, any final thoughts? Also, please just uh, let the listeners know. Now's your, now's your time.
3: Yeah, sure. So uh, thank thanks to all you guys. This is this is great. Um, appreciate the opportunity to do it again. Um, hope it's valuable for people. I think one thing I, I learned, Rashal, you definitely kind of changed things for me in a very positive way after that last uh, that last episode we did. Uh, learned a lot. I encourage people to take the time, network. Okay, whether or not you use a recruiter or not, just network, get to know people. You know, I've had a great time here at SIR speaking. Um, I'll be at OEIS and I'll be at SEAS um, in, um, in Florida this year. People could contact me. Uh, easiest way is probably on Twitter. Um, check out my blog, linemonkeymd.com. Trump, uh, thanks for putting this together.
2: You called me just, uh, I don't know, an hour and 30 minutes ago. We're all here at SIR. <laughs> so glad you're here, like, hey, man, you This wanna, is awesome. Do you want to do an impromptu it's, it's so uh, well. episode two? And I was like, yeah. And maybe we'll do an impromptu episode three at some point. And yeah, that'll be number one, number Absolutely. two, and number three in the <laughs> most popular podcast. In terms of uh, final comments, uh, major things that have, that I've seen change. The one thing that I started the podcast out at the beginning is this exclusive uh, agreement that I ran into. Uh, I don't know if that's going to become a new trend and yeah, something obviously. for anyone thinking about going into the space to be cognizant of it seems like an appropriate response from the agencies um, and maybe those people who are listening who are maybe on the other side of this looking to, to staff their you know groups, be wary of that and maybe maybe deepen your pool of physician context so you don't find yourself shackled by this. Um, and then uh, the market is changing. It has changed since the last time we spoke. Um, so keep your ear to the ground. Uh, we didn't really talk about this. It must be a topic for another episode. But you know, um, what are we seeing in rural versus non-rural? Uh, America, um, uh, as well as um, you know, where do we think the locums market is going to go uh, with all the changes? But uh, uh, you, my information information's always been the same. You can always reach out to you or and um, call me directly uh, and through you or whatever. I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions, yeah. particularly off the record. So phenomenal, yeah. Thank
4: you guys. Yeah, this was phenomenal. Uh, hope hoping to catch a drink with you guys later today. This yeah. is uh, this is Definitely. really really fun. Um, I hope we get to do episode three at some point. Um, just, I want to thank BackTable again. It's been really fun being a guest host uh, on the podcast, and uh, yeah, just uh, live, from, uh, S-I-R. live from SIR, live from It's been it's been a great time. So thanks, thanks everybody. I uh, hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already,
0: make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza,
1: and Ali Behetti.
0: Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross,
1: and Ness Smith Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz
3: article and transcript support by taylor robinson
1: and delaney aguilar social
4: media and pr by Anne dang administrative support provided by jimmy kinabrew
1: intro and extra music is riparoo by skeptic moon find us on spotify or at local live music venues in new orleans louisiana thanks again for listening
0: Hey everyone, it's Aaron Fritz and Chris Beck. We've been working on something new and exciting for our colleagues and trainees. Quick story, last year, I had read somewhere that the volume of medical information doubles every 73 days, 73 days. It hit me that it's really difficult to keep up and it got me thinking about Backtable. We're getting good practical knowledge from our podcasts, but there's room for improvement in them as an educational resource. We felt like we owed it to you, our audience, to build on the podcast to address this need. And that's what we're doing with
1: Backtable Plus. Plus. Exactly, Aaron. Backtable Plus is for doctors who are seeking to elevate their practice and sharpen their skills by learning from their peers. We've created focused, curated courses on interventional and endovascular procedures vetted by Backtable's network of practicing experts, and we're really proud to be able to share that with you all. It's live now at backtable.com. Tap the link and just click on courses at the top. Yeah, in addition to getting this information
0: in a concise course format, you get CME for it. I figured we're educating ourselves constantly online. It sure would be nice to get credit for it. Partnering with CME if I made this happen. There are three
1: years worth of CME credits already live in the platform today. These courses are live right now. Find the link or type in backtable.com and click the tab that says courses, and that's it. We also made a mobile app, and you can grab that from either Apple or Android's App Store as well. Couple
0: more things. From now until SIR in late March, users will get 50% off of the annual subscription, a great way to use your education funds. And the first 25 physicians to sign up, you guessed it, a signature limited edition Back a Plus hoodie. Only a few of these, so get them while you can. Can't wait to see you there. Just go to backtable.com and click on courses at the top.